This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my great pleasure to introduce our plenary speaker, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. She's a professor of medicine in the UCLA Division of Cardiology and the director of imaging in the UCLA Cardiac Arrhythmia Center. Just a few months ago, in 2012, she published uh, with a colleague a book entitled Zubiquity, What Animals Can Teach Us About Health and the Science of Healing. So today, her presentation will address species-spanning medicine, healing all the patients on the planet. So please join in giving me a warm welcome to uh, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. Well, thank you, Marilyn. That's a very nice introduction. And uh, I'm really delighted to be here and grateful that everyone has hung out uh, hours late. Well, uh, I'm going to admit it. I, uh, not too long ago, turned 50. And um, I'm happy to say I'm in pretty good shape. But it turns out my, my vision's going. Uh, I've, I've been nearsighted since I was uh, in third grade. Every single picture that I have, I have thick glasses, you know, my entire childhood. But it turns out as I'm getting older, not only am I having difficulty seeing at a distance, I now am having increased difficulty seeing close. And I visited the eye doctor, and she told me that she was going to give me one contact lens for one eye for distance and the, a lens in the other eye to look to read, and, but that ultimately I was going to have to choose, um, <clears throat> that I would have to choose whether I wanted to be able to uh, read closely, uh, very accurately, or whether I wanted to be able to read uh, signs on the freeway at night, <laughs> which is kind of a dilemma for an academic for, from Los Angeles. But, um, but anyway, I'm sharing that story with you because this choosing between whether uh, we look at things um, up close and uh, there are things that are very small and right in front of us and whether we see the larger view is something that can be challenging for physicians um, and very difficult. But it is something that I think uh, all of us uh, healthcare practitioners are challenged to, uh, to try to do both. Ten years ago, I was happily practicing cardiology uh, at UCLA. And uh, like many of my colleagues, I was pleased by the super specialized form of medicine that I was expert at. Um, I wasn't just a cardiologist. I was specializing in cardiovascular imaging, and not just general cardiovascular imaging. I was focusing on imaging the extremely small structures of the heart that contribute to cardiac arrhythmia. And I was the director of the imaging uh, of imaging for the Arrhythmia Center. And for years, I'd been visualizing the heart from the surface of the body, and from then from the esophagus. Um, but in more recent years, I developed an expertise in slipping a tiny version of the ultrasound transducer into the heart itself to visualize scars that contributed to life-threatening arrhythmias. Um, my most important uh, academic contribution at that point was the development of a procedure involving the placement of a 7-millimeter ultrasound crystal into the pericardial sac of a heart failure patient to help guide other cardiologists wielding tissue-burning catheters to the zones of heart tissue where the deployment of their radiofrequency payload could optimally destroy the arrhythmia-generating scars. I called it PICE percutaneous 
intrapericardial echocardiography. Well, what on earth am I doing talking to a group about global health? Well, in the midst of this um, very exciting work that I was doing, and it was very exciting, um, the, the field of cardiac uh, arrhythmia is, is, is extremely generative. There's a lot going on. Um, I wasn't thinking very much about global health. And to be perfectly honest, I think a lot of practicing physicians don't consider it their concern. As a citizen, uh, as a parent, I, I definitely had emerging concerns about climate change, which I'd been learning about. I was always concerned about pollution. Uh, I was aware that geopolitical instability um, was having some very adverse effects. But as a doctor, not really. My universe of advancing imaging technologies to aid in the treatment and prevention of atrial fibrillation or supraventricular tachycardias felt very, very deep without bringing in the health concerns of other populations, let alone other regions. And I wasn't alone. Like most physicians I knew, just staying current with my own field, dealing with a busy practice, conducting research and writing, was more than enough of a professional focus and concern. But then I had an experience that really transformed how I thought about my patients and medicine and really changed the direction of my whole life. I was quite by chance invited to uh, become a member of the medical advisory board of our local zoo. And it turns out that zoos around the country, the veterinarians at zoos, regularly reach into medical communities um, to, from time to time, participate in some ways um, in the care of the animals under the supervision of the veterinarians. And I was one of the lucky, lucky ones. And, and it happened because I, you know, my area of expertise was in cardiac ultrasound, and that's what they needed some, some assistance with. So from time to time, when I got the call, I'd go here to the Gottlieb Animal Health and Conservation Center. And um, I had some incredible opportunities. I, I, I was able to um, assess a heart murmur in a macaw, um, rule out constrictive pericarditis in a sea lion. And this picture, I'm listening to the heart of a lion um, after a procedure um, that drained about 750 cc's of serosanguinous fluid from her pericardial sac. So she had cardiac tamponade. And I was, I was still doing my regular job, um, which was you know, doing imaging over at UCLA on humans. But I started thinking a lot about the connections between animal and human health. I mean, I started thinking about it kind of all the time. Uh, and I, I quickly learned about One Health, um, and uh, those people sitting here are, are probably aware that One Health has been an important and growing movement which has recognized the critical importance of veterinary and human medicine coming together. And so I learned about it, and I did some grand rounds, and I featured uh, much some of what was presented today, um, the reality that the majority of emerging infections that are affecting human populations um, emanate from the animal reservoir. I remembered and reviewed and relearned how important animals are to the life cycle of many diseases that affect human beings. 
And I learned um, and more about how important animals can be um, as sentinels for disease for humans, not just infectious disease, even uh, domestic violence and other disorders. And this was all very interesting to me, and uh, it became something that I talked about on rounds, and I just kind of always wanted to talk about animal diseases with my human physicians. But, you know, it turns out I wasn't an infectious disease doctor. I wasn't a public health official. And frankly, most of the people I I was hanging out around um, weren't either. My friends at UCLA were other clinical doctors, obstetricians, dermatologists, psychiatrists, pediatricians. And the truth is, for them, the connection to animal health and human health was maybe around laboratory animal medicine, maybe around zoonoses. They really didn't see that there were other important connections. So I was going to the zoo, and I was having these experiences, and I was coming back to UCLA and encountering physicians who were surprised by what I was saying, or in some cases, not particularly interested. But I was learning for the first time, I mean, after 25 years after graduating medical school, I was learning things that veterinary students learn in their first week of vet school. And that animals and humans suffer from the same diseases, from breast cancer and diabetes, from brain tumors to gout, from sexually transmitted diseases to OCD. And I was also learning at the zoo by hanging around veterinarians and beginning to attend their conferences and read their journals that animal experts had effective and in many cases more effective strategies for dealing with these disorders in their patients. But since physicians and veterinarians rarely engaged academically around non-infectious, non-zoonotic, non-laboratory animal conditions, there was little exchange of that information. So despite the fact that our fields, and by that I mean human medicine and veterinary medicine, share medical fathers. Virchow, of course, was considered you know, one of the fathers of modern pathology. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with this quote. One of his most illustrious pupils was Sir William Osler, who medical students consider a father of modern medicine. And I learned that veterinary students, too, consider Osler one of the fathers of their field. So despite having the same fathers, There was very little communication, and frankly, not that much interest from my colleagues. So I decided I would shake things up a little bit, because I was so interested in this, and um, a few of my friends, close friends, and and family, frankly, I come from a family of physicians, and either we all have a shared uh, disorder that we're uniquely interested in this, or we had sort of felt like we'd stumbled into something that was just extremely fascinating if presented in the right way to physicians. So I kept track of all the conditions I saw at UCLA in human patients, and then I looked for veterinary correlates. And so I began giving grand rounds to groups of medical students at different medical schools, um, different organizations, and I'd show this very simplified slide. Do animals get breast cancer, sudden cardiac death, Hodgkin's melanoma, brain tumors, erectile dysfunction, leukemia, aortic dissection, sexually transmitted diseases, and of course the answer to all those is yes, 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 yes. Now when I give this lecture to veterinarians, this is what you see in the audience. But when you give this, when I, and I've given this to many groups of physicians and physicians in training, when the yeses come floating in, there's tons of conversation, even laughter. This is news to physicians, most physicians. Not all, but most physicians. There is a gap 
between what physicians understand about animal health and what veterinarians understand about human health. So I began thinking about this because it was an awful lot of fun and I was awfully interested. I was uh, actually developing a database of just of animal conditions that, um, that were correlate and, and human correlates. Um, and around this time, I started thinking about whether this could be a book, and I had the incredible good fortune of, of meeting Catherine Bowers, a science journalist with whom I wrote this book and spent five years um, researching and just having a magnificent time. But I began wondering why this might matter uh, and how I, I felt it mattered. I felt... Um, I've honestly felt like I was bumping into this unexplored continent that all of my colleagues needed to know about, but that I couldn't wake them up. So I thought, well, I'll try to be very specific about it and say, why does it matter that animals get the same diseases that humans get? And more specifically, that the diseases that you, clinical physician, clinical academic physician, are taking care of in your patient today, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticulitis, preeclampsia, et cetera, et cetera, why that? It was important that non-human species spontaneously developed those same conditions. And not only why it was important, how irresponsible it was actually, intellectually and academically, for you, physician, to not be aware of that. So I said that I would kind of codify this into two groups. I said it matters for two reasons. It matters because there are educational benefits to physicians in adopting a comparative approach. You know, veterinarians, and there are many in the audience, you guys are taught from day one in a comparative way. We are not. When my father went to medical school, he took comparative anatomy, comparative physiology, comparative pathophysiology. But my father is turning 90 this year. And somewhere between when he graduated medical school and when I did, they stopped teaching it. But the comparative method has many, many benefits. I also think that there's something that's very powerful for physicians and physicians in training to recognize that many of the disorders that are very stigmatizing for human patients actually occur spontaneously in animals. And finally, from the perspective of training emerging investigators, recognizing the same disorders in different species and understanding that they may present differently, that there could be variable susceptibilities, can be profoundly hypothesis-generating. On the other side, I felt that there were professional benefits to physicians moving beyond traditional sources of information, that that in of itself was valuable, recognizing that, hey, you know what, veterinarians, academic veterinarians, academic uh, veterinary oncologists, cardiologists, infectious disease specialists, that they were colleagues and sources of information for you, clinical physician meant that there might be other important sources of information who were not siloed in the human medical community. I also felt that there were interprofessional opportunities for investigation and other important collaborations and ultimately opportunities for interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research. In order to illustrate the first point, the patient point, when I began lecturing, I tried to make things colorful for medical students and for my colleagues. So I talked about aortic dissection first. I'm a cardiologist. Aortic dissection is a serious problem. The aorta is the largest artery in the body. And uh, every year, about a little under 10,000 Americans die from a tear in this artery. It's called a dissection. Uh, Albert Einstein is one of the unfortunate um, 
people who died of aortic dissection. But it turns out that aortic dissection kills many animals and is a leading killer of adult male gorillas in captivity. Now, when I present that information, it has a, a big impact on particularly medical students and sometimes physicians, because most never even thought about animals and diseases. But then we take it a step further, and I ask them, I say, what causes aortic dissection in most human patients? And someone raises their hand, and they say, atheroma, atherosclerosis. I say, well, what if I told you that these gorillas on necropsy don't have evidence of atherosclerosis? What, why might they be dissecting? And then someone raises their hand and suggests maybe hypertension. And then I say, how can you measure hypertension, hypertension in a patient who can't get a cuff pressure easily? And then we move forward. We say, well, what if I told you these patients don't have retinopathy? What else might be going on? And then they go to connective tissue disorders and so on and so forth. And it becomes an interesting opportunity to sort of expand how we think about the differential diagnosis. When we talk about cancer, and I'm just going to zip through a few light examples, but breast cancer is a tremendously important, obviously, problem for human medicine. Uh, by the time a student has finished his third year medical student, he will have taken care of probably many patients um, in some phase of treatment. And learning that any mammal with breast tissue can develop breast cancer is interesting. And, of course, there are comparative... Um, so I, I give all my students now a, a paper on comparative mammary cancer that was written by uh, Dr. Linda Munson from uh, UC Davis. And it's, um, I think it's important just to have that expanded perspective. But it's also interesting to point out that there are certain animals... For example, uh, jaguars who are treated with progestins in zoos that seem to have an elevated incidence of ovarian and, um, and breast cancer. And English Springer Spaniels who have a BRCA1 mutation who also have an increased tendency for breast cancer. Versus animals on the other side, such as dairy cows, who lactate constantly, who have a remarkably low incidence. So just offering this up as a discussion, why that might be, what that tells us about human susceptibility, vulnerability, and even strategies of prevention, is a different, new, and I think expanded way for medical students and physicians to think about important human clinical problems. We talk about STDs. We doc physicians are not the only doctors who take care of patients who don't practice safe sex and have multiple sexual partners. <laughs> and of course, I'm sure many of you here are familiar with the now well-told story of um, the chlamydia epidemic that's affecting the koalas in Australia. And um, some of the work that the wildlife biologists are doing to um, map out which of the which koalas are vulnerable, which seem to be uh, less susceptible, why that might be, and those models are interesting and probably applicable to human populations. And there are many things we can talk about um, connected to STDs. One of the things I'm really excited about that's happened since the book was published is that um, the, the folks who do AP biology courses um, are uh, thinking about using the book to teach certain, um, to teach human development courses. Um, and there's a couple of chapters on sexuality in there, which I was kind of surprised that they would want for high school students because it gets a little, you know, a little sexy there, um, but they um, but they they like it and um, they feel that it's a, a good way to talk about sexuality um, and particularly STDs and how anyway. Long story short, the it's been very exciting talking with um, some of our medical students about um, some of the infectious disease chapters. Obesity is another very exciting topic to to sort of reveal as a species spanning concern. We humans are not the only uh, species who are having an obesity epidemic. Our domestic dogs and cats are 
getting fatter and fatter. Uh, not that surprising in a way because we overfeed them and we underexercise them. But it's interesting that some um, data from wildlife biologists has noted that some wild populations seem to be getting heavier. Opening up the question as to whether there are environmental factors, including endocrine-disrupting chemicals or antibiotics, that could be contributing to a global species-spanning uh, obesity issue. Again, if you're only looking like this at human beings, you'll never ask the question, like that. Finally, uh, since I'm a cardiologist, one of the most exciting aspects of this has been uh, recognizing a syndrome that veterinarians have known about for at least 50 years, I think more than that, uh, that we human physicians um, diagnosed to much fanfare uh, around the year 2000. It's fear or stress-induced heart failure. This figure shows the um, uh, the number of uh, cardiovascular-related deaths on January the 17th, 1994, that was the date of the Northridge earthquake, the last large earthquake um, in L.A., compared to the rates of death on January 17th in the three years preceding. And, of course, it turns out that we humans are not the only ones who, uh, only animals who can, in the throes of extreme fear, have a surge of catecholamines that can lead to a transient cardiomyopathy, and in some cases death that can affect uh, tamarind, uh, shorebirds, ungulates, rabbits, and, and many others. And what's exciting about this is that as I began presenting this information, um, I had the opportunity to have in the audience a wildlife biologist who works at UCLA. And he said to me, you know what, there are certain animals that when we capture them to ban them and, and to do whatever they need to do, that will have sudden death just from the restraint and other animals that are completely impervious. And we began thinking about this, he and I, and actually I was fortunate that he was very open to this transdisciplinary um, kind of thinking. He happens to also be the chair of evolutionary biology at UCLA, and so now we've embarked on a project to develop a phylogeny for ventricular tachycardia, a phylogeny for sudden cardiac death. This kind of a project is only possible if you're thinking outside of your narrow focus. And certainly I had to think beyond my little 7-millimeter catheter that I was sticking into the pericardium to visualize someone else's catheters who were burning uh, the fibrillating tissue. But what's exciting about this to me is that it brings this broad view back to something very small, to ventricular tachycardia, which is the terminal arrhythmia for most living creatures with a heart. From that, um, I moved forward with um, connections at UCLA with our evolutionary biologists, and we've actually now created um, a series of conferences we call the Evolutionary Medicine Month. We hold them in February, and we've been inviting the leaders in this emerging field um, from around the world to come and speak. We are, uh, we've developed projects for students, and um, it's very thrilling to announce that come fall, UCLA undergraduates will actually be able to major in evolutionary, minor, minor in evolutionary medicine uh, with faculty from the School of Medicine, Evolutionary Biology, uh, Anthropology. So it's just part of this expanding transdisciplinary opportunity for physicians at, at UCLA, let's say, to see beyond the narrow thing that they're doing and to appreciate the broader implications. And it was through, actually, my connection with the evolutionary biologist that I learned 
that actually Darwin wrote about emotions and evolution and emotions. And so I just want to kind of, as I'm, I'm ending here, I want to tell you a little bit that the group that so far, the group of physicians that so far has been the most interested in this, apart from infectious disease doctors and public health doctors who readily understand this, have been the psychiatrists who are very, very interested in the idea of comparative psychopathology. When I give I gave grand rounds at NPI not long ago, and I came up with a very similar slide to the one that I gave to the internal medicine doctors. And uh, it has been really thrilling to um, offer examples of correlates between, uh, let's say, Alzheimer's disease in humans and canine cognitive, dis cognitive dysfunction in dogs, um, panic disorder in humans and panic disorder in dogs, canine uh, compulsive disorder in dogs and OCD in humans. It goes on and on. I talked to the psychiatrist about a human condition called trichotillomania, which is when people pull the hair out, typically of their eyelashes, but it can be anywhere on their body. And I talk about a potential animal correlate called feather plucking disorder that happens to parrots and other birds when they're stressed. And it was very exciting to watch the psychiatrist discuss without you know, needing to talk about psychotherapy and such, which you can't do on a bird, obviously, how the insights of the animal experts might be translated into a human veterinary community. And it goes on and on. And there are many examples of psychopathology in animals that may or may not be correlates to the human conditions. But at least asking the question, at least recognizing that there is a community of experts on the animal side who deal with psychopathology in their patients, that at least building a bridge and having a conversation is an important step. Well, I want to just kind of um, leave you with this. Uh, we all talk about translational medicine as being um, the way for us to advance knowledge and gain information, that we go from the bench to the bedside. But I think everyone here recognizes that there is the reverse form of translational medicine, which can look broadly across species, and even if you think that evolutionary medicine has value across time, to yield insights that can then, too, be brought to the human bedside. Because, of course, if we humans are animals, then all doctors are veterinarians. Uh, we physicians simply specialize in one species. And I believe there is a benefit to a species-spanning form of medicine. I can't honestly say that I know what it is exactly, but I just know that remaining in our silo and not thinking beyond our profession is definitely not the way to go. There is knowledge that is hiding in plain sight and colleagues that are hiding in plain sight, colleagues for physicians to know about and learn from, from veterinarians, evolutionary biologists, ecologists, and many, many others. At UCLA, we've started a number of uh, initiatives to advance this transdisciplinary kind of learning. I'm really thrilled that um, Dr. Pat Conrad is here. She was my co-founder of the original Zubiquity Conference, and again last year, and Dr. Laramore is here. Um, we were very lucky to have Dr. Benny Osborne at the first one as well, so we're really um, thrilled that Davis um, has been partners with us. And we are moving forward with our evolutionary medicine uh, initiative, um, our conferences, and, um, and the minor. So that's very thrilling. This is posters from our Zubiquity Conference, a species-spanning approach to medicine.
Finally, um, I'm beginning to teach courses. I started uh, last year and continue again this year in comparative medicine uh, for our medical students. And I'm jointly teaching um, these courses with DVMs um, and MDs. And our students are very enthusiastic. We've, um, we've had a lot of interest. More students wanted to be in our class than we could accommodate. And each one of them is going to be expected to do some research project, which requires them to reach outside the traditional MD community uh, to gain information for their project. Well, what I'd like to do now, uh, with permission, is just read to you from the last paragraph of Zubiquity. And, um, and then I'll close and we can have our panel discussion. You could say that one of the most exciting new ideas in medicine today is something our ancestors took for granted and somehow we forgot, that humans and animals get the same diseases. By looking, but by looking at these processes both closely and at a distance and working between and across disciplines, we can advance the health of all species. This calls for physicians to join veterinarians, public health workers, conservationists, and patients to think beyond the human bedside to barnyards, jungles, oceans, and skies. Because the fate of our world's health doesn't depend solely on how we humans fare. Rather, it will be determined by how all the patients on the planet live, grow, get sick, and heal. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.